Let's go to the United States now. Danielle Kurtzleben, uh, Kurtzleben, excuse me, is political correspondent assigned to NPR's Washington desk. Hi, Danielle. Thank you for being with us. Of course. Good to be here. Now, the Democrats are experiencing splits over the U.S. policy with respect to what is happening with Israel and the war in Gaza. This is having political ramifications around the world, amongst other things. What is happening there, Danielle? Yes. I mean, in short, it's really, as you said, it split the party and it split it uh, along a couple of lines. One is by age with younger Democrats being quite sympathetic towards Palestine as opposed to older Democrats who are more sympathetic towards Israel, which is, by the way, something that the Republican Party is much more uniformly, uh, more uh, staunchly pro-Israel. It's also an ideological split, though, with more progressive Democrats being more uh, pro-Palestine and uh, more centrist Democrats being more pro-Israel. Now, this came to head this last weekend in Washington, D.C., with a pretty big protest of tens of thousands of people. We don't have full estimates yet, but tens of thousands of people, it's fair to say, being out in the streets uh, saying they want a ceasefire. So that is uh, that is definitely the thing that is splitting, whether a, whether the... U.S. political leadership should push for that ceasefire, or as they have been saying, a, quote, humanitarian pause. Is this happening among activists within the party, or is it happening among members of the House as well, House and Senate? It It is. That is a very good question, because it's happening a lot among activists, among many young Democrats, like I said. Now, in the House and in the Senate, it has been slower to catch on. We have had some members of the House... Uh, at, at latest count, maybe just shy of two dozen uh, who are in that progressive wing. Some are members of what you may have heard called the squad of young, uh, many members of the House of Color, those people who are calling for a ceasefire. But being pro-Israel uh, and supporting Israel and standing behind that country has been U.S. foreign policy since time immemorial. So it, it is not a policy that is easy to sway other people in the party on. In the Senate, uh, last I saw was Dick Durbin, senator from Illinois, had expressed some uh, enthusiasm about a ceasefire, but it is it, it is not a popular position in the Senate by any means. What of the political situation that uh, the United States administration is in? Uh, I think your Secretary of State is heading back to the Middle East again. The delicacy, even over the words that can be used with respect to pause or ceasefire, and just what seems to be very little influence in, in getting Benjamin Netanyahu or the Israeli defence leaders to, to, to cooperate. There have been some uh, gains with um, some access um, for aid and some ability for, for some to leave. But in terms of anything that people would consider a pause, a humanitarian pause, the call does not seem to be being answered. Uh, that's absolutely true. And, I, and Joe Biden, to be totally clear here, he's in a very tough position. I mean, it's not just the U.S. is pro-Israel and that's where he is. It's that even if he had a different position and all of those people in his party were behind him, Okay, but what? How much? How much influence would that have on Israel? That's also unclear. I mean, it, it would make a difference. It would be a big deal if he changed his rhetoric. But it's but Benjamin Netanyahu, as you pointed out, like has been understandably 
very angry, very, very ready to retaliate and then some uh, against Hamas and uh, including hitting some refugee camps, Palestine civilians. It's gotten really ugly. And it's we're really seeing here how much or really how little influence the U.S. has. So is Secretary Blinken back in the region again now or heading there? Uh, last I checked, he is heading there. Right. Uh, I am not up to date on okay. that exactly, but yeah. Okay. What is the No Labels group, please? Oh, No Labels is a group that formed in Washington in 2010. Uh, things are very polarized here in the U.S., as you've heard me say many times. Well, that was when the polarization seemed a lot more tame than it does now. But at the time... The idea was it was formed by Democrat, Democratic and Republican bigwigs, essentially, former party leaders, that sort of thing, to say, OK, let's have some cooperation across party lines. So they tried to influence politicians uh, to do that, to just compromise with each other. And if they didn't, then the group said, well, we will show up at your town halls. We will uh, make sure sh- we will try to uh, influence the elections that you're in. And uh, how successful has that has that approach been for them? Well, I've just may have, as like I said, as I've told you, uh, there ain't a lot of compromise in Washington right now. But the reason that you're asking me about this, of course, and the reason that they're in the news is because they have said we are going to put forward a presidential candidate in 2024. Not just a candidate, but a ticket, a ticket with one Republican and one Democrat on it. Now. This really became a big deal in Washington in the last few weeks because Democratic leaders have come out very forcefully saying, please don't do that because you're really going to hurt Joe Biden. You're just going to elect Donald Trump. Now, no labels position is, look, the electorate is not enthusiastic about Trump. It's not enthusiastic about Biden. We just want to put forward someone that people can be enthusiastic about. But the appetite for a third party may be limited with with people not wanting to vote for a spoiler. And is it the Democrats most likely to be imperiled by this if it splits the vote? Is that their perspective? That is their perspective, especially it, it depends upon what No Labels decides to do in terms of that ticket, because they have said they might put a Republican at the top and a Democrat in the VP slot as opposed to a Democrat at the top and a Republican in the VP slot. According to no labels polling, if you put a Republican at the top of the ticket, that hurts Biden more, but also gives them a much more enthusiastic response from voters. Probably, and this would make a lot of sense, it would peel off some of those quote-unquote never-Trump Republicans who jumped over to Biden's side in 2020 just because they said, I can't vote for Donald Trump, so I've just got to vote for Biden and hold my nose a bit. How does this differ from an independent running, which has also happened in the past? Oh, yes. And we do have a couple of independent candidates in already. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Cornell West are both in the race. This differs in part because there is some, I mean, it's not that voters know who No Labels is. It's not necessarily recognition, but the group is quite well funded. It is an independent group that can raise money also without reporting exactly who is giving it money and how much. So this is a candidate who could potentially have a lot of firepower behind them. What is the latest pleas in the former president Donald Trump's civil fraud trial? 
Yes. So this is a trial in New York, and this is happening really as we speak. He just uh, testified today. And what? And this is after, by the way, his sons have both testified. His daughter, Ivanka, is set to testify. They have all said they have all tried to distance themselves from these documents that are being claimed to be fraudulent, saying, you know, that I had nothing to do with this. They aren't we they aren't fraudulent. At least I didn't think they were. But today, Trump, he got he got reprimanded by the judge for one thing. Uh, I guess he the judge threatened to remove Trump from the witness stand at one point because Trump was just meandering. He kept kind of making almost political speeches and not really answering the questions asked of him. And the judge told him, quote, this is not a political rally. He also told Trump's attorney to, quote, control your client. So it was apparently quite a scene in that New York courtroom today. Where are we getting? Uh, and obviously we're not there yet, but how far through are we, Danielle? Uh, with this case, uh, not terribly, uh, but but also when it comes to all four major cases against the president, we are very, very much at the beginning. Uh, there are there are many more trial dates to come. Some of these trials don't start until, you know, March of next year. It could be quite some time before we have any resolution on this. But what you can bet is that's going to keep Donald Trump off the campaign trail and that might work against him. It could work for him, though, giving him less opportunity to spout off and say things that might upset some voters. A long way still to go then, yes? Very much, yes. This It, it is going to be a long uh, year in terms of covering this stuff. Are there other legal actions? Just remind me, I'm still confused as to whether the legal actions are running parallel or are separate. That's the Georgia the Georgia case uh, they, is a, is an election um, uh, pressure on officials allegation, isn't it? Yes, yeah, that was about Trump calling up uh, election officials, Secretary of State in uh, Georgia, and saying, "See if you can find some more votes." Essentially, I'm paraphrasing a bit there. Yeah, yeah. But yes, there's that one. Uh, there's business char- fraud in New York. There's classified documents charges in Florida, that bit where they found all of those classified documents around Mar-a-Lago. And there's a federal indictment in election interference. Thank you, Danielle Kurtzman, is political correspondent assigned to NPR's Washington desk.